Anybody know where we are in, in, in God? Well, first of all, what book of the Bible are we in? Love that. What chapter? 13. Love it. We're just kind of slowly getting through 13. I think we've been in 13 now for two months. But uh, <clears throat> it's not going to, we're not looking at a lot today either. But uh, Luke chapter 13, verses 18 through 20. Come on, baby. We're going to open God's word. Let's stand with excitement, all right? Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? Already we should just be like, are you kidding me? What's he going to say? He's going to talk about the kingdom of heaven. Most exciting thing going on right now is the kingdom of heaven. What's Jesus going to say about it? What shall I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed. Which a man took and planted in his garden, his gone. And it grew became a tree. Matthew and Mark's version of this say, a great tree. And the birds perched in its branches. Again, Jesus asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like yeast, leaven that a woman took and mixed. (laughs) It's so funny. I've been studying the NASB all week, and now I'm looking at how the NIV translates this. Can I just read this how it should really read? It's like, I know, Neil's not here. Neil Martin was part of that whole thing. So, (laughs) What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like yeast that a woman took. And she took three measures of flour and worked it through the dough. I know, subtle difference, but you'll see why I wanted that difference. You can be seated. All right, these are just two tiny parables, um, but hopefully you're, you're going to see the, the punch that they pack. Only three of the Gospels uh, have Jesus' parables. John's Gospel doesn't include parables. There are 46 parables in all in the three Gospels. Um, there are only a handful of the parables that make it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This is one of them, the parable of the mustard seed which should tell us, whether we can see it yet or not, that this is hugely important. And, of course, it's important because Jesus is using this parable to flush out the kingdom of heaven. And, and, and I think we as Westerners, we, when, when we talk about concepts and ideas, especially things like God or persons or the makeup of persons or the kingdom of heaven, we, we want a definition. Just give us a definition so we can understand it. But the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible doesn't give us simple definitions about the deepest things of life. Why not? I want you to think about that. I think a big part is because the deepest things in life can't be explained away by a simple definition. And the moment you apply a simple definition to something like God, you've just packaged him. And in packaging him, you've probably minimized him and reduced him to something he's not. 
And that's why the Bible isn't a systematic theology. We like to make it into such, and I'm not against doing systematic theology, but the Bible, first and foremost, is a story. And this is why Jesus, over and over again, when he's explaining concepts like the kingdom of heaven is, and the kingdom of heaven is like this, or what shall I compare it to? Now, what is the kingdom of heaven? And now you want a definition still. So I'll give you one. I'll give you another angle to look at it, okay? Just a, just a clause. The kingdom of heaven is simply God's salvation. It's God's redemption. That's what the whole Bible is about. It's, it, it's about God. It's about the salvation, the, the, the redemption that he's going to bring, not just to you, but to the whole world. And so now you can close your eyes right now because I want you to close your eyes and to consider what Jesus says. The kingdom of heaven, says Jesus, is like a seed that a man took and planted. Where? In his garden. And Jesus says this seed, it takes root and it grows into a tree. And then the birds of the air, they come and they make their nests, their home in this tree. Open your eyes. Can you picture that? I think you can. Now ask yourself this question. How is this picture that you envisioned in your mind a picture of God's salvation? How is it a picture of God's redemption? Just at face value, give me some things. It sounds very peaceful. The garden especially. And I'm not going to break it right now, but garden already should be like taking us somewhere. A tree in a garden. What else? What else can we just, what are some just, at first blush, some takeaways about the kingdom of heaven? Shade. Shade for who? The birds. Then you have to ask yourself, who are the birds? We'll get to that. What else? What? It's a what? It's alive. It's alive and it's providing life and shelter and home. Is it top down or is it bottom up? It's bottom up. Is it outside in or is it inside out? Thank you for that prayer this morning. It's inside out. The kingdom of heaven is inside out. It's not external. It starts in here and works itself out. It's unseen. Can't always see it. Can't see leaven. Can't always see that seed when it's in the ground, but it's there And it's this powerful, unstoppable force. See, this is why Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like this, and it's like that. There's already just, at first blush, these kinds of things. Um, I want to break this down further, because I think when you read a parable, you got to be careful sometimes to match up all the pieces and parts. But in these two parables, I think you can match up all the pieces and parts. So I've broken that down for you. And 
Uh, <laughs> I don't do PowerPoints near that good. That's just uh, people in the office that do that for me. I just give them the stuff, but thank you. The man, the farmer, Jesus, mustard seed, the kingdom of heaven, or the, or the message of it, the garden, it's the world, the tree, is the kingdom when fully realized, and the birds of the air are the nations. It's cosmic, too. Can you feel how cosmic this is? The other one, eleven. The woman, don't get hung up on this, is Jesus. The yeast, again, the message of the kingdom. The dough, the whole world. Does this give you hope? A little pinch of the kingdom of heaven when it gets worked into the world. You can't stop, you can't stop yeast. You can't stop leaven, even though you can't see it. It is this unstoppable force. Okay, Jesus is not going to talk about trees or gardens or a woman with flour unless this stuff is already in the text. Because whenever Jesus talks, in fact, even everything Jesus does, it's commentary on the text. It's, 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 he's explaining the scriptures. So, what scriptures is Jesus explaining? Let's start with the woman. That's why I reread it, because I was giving you some hints. You have a woman with three measures of flour. Where is that in the text? Sweet. You guys are going to learn something today. Unless you're just being bashful, or you're very tired already. Wake up! (laughs) Sarah, Genesis 18. One of my favorite stories in the Bible. Uh, Do you guys remember the story? The text says Sarah took three measures of flour, or three seas of flour, one sia is 20 pounds. See, this is where the NIV translates it. Anybody do bread, make bread? Ask yourself, how much bread does 60 pounds of flour make? In other words, Sarah is preparing an extravagant feast. For who? Three strangers. One of those strangers is who? She doesn't know it at first. Jesus. Like, what? Jesus is in the Old Testament? Well, anytime God, this says the Lord, appeared to their tent. As a, as a person. So, why is Jesus showing up at Sarah's tent? Sodom and Gomorrah. He's come to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. What's the rest of Genesis 18 about? Does anybody remember? It's such a phenomenal story about Abraham. Basically, it's about Abraham pleading with God on behalf of wicked Sodom. He stands in the gap on behalf of this city, and he says, please, God, spare them. He's preaching for them. What does all of this teach us about the kingdom of heaven? A ton. 
If you want to see what the kingdom of heaven looks like, it's a party, it's a banquet of extravagant proportions. And it's this little old man and, 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 and woman who are barren. It's this man who's standing in the gap, standing toe-to-toe with God for wicked people, saying, would you please spare him? It's flavor of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, if something is going to pass the sniff test for the kingdom... It's going to reek of extravagant generosity. And not just generosity to people of our kind or people of our tribe, but generosity, throwing banquets for people who are not like us, for people who are outside our tribe. And it's going to reek of people like Abraham who can stand in the gap and stand toe-to-toe with God and say, God, would you please spare them? Would you please uh, save them? Again, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. So when's the last time we threw an extravagant banquet for strangers? Crossroads is doing it. People in our church are doing it. And it's a beautiful thing. When's the last time we stood toe-to-toe with God and interceded with him on behalf of lost, broken, pagan people. It's the kingdom of heaven. Okay, how about the parable of the mustard seed? i just give you a couple of really quick clues. you got a tree planted in a garden. I like this detail. Uh, the birds make their, their nest in its branches. Give you a little more background here. In the ancient world, a tree or, or a vine oftentimes symbolizes a nation. That's why Israel in the Old Testament is oftentimes depicted as a vine. Psalm 80, Isaiah, Isaiah 5, other places. It's a vine. Other places, it's a tree. But then if you also uh, read the Old Testament, you notice that they talk about this, this great world tree. It's kind of like one tree to rule them all. Yeah, a couple Lord of the Rings fans here. And, and, and let me uh, just li- listen to how the prophets describe this great world tree. This comes out of Ezekiel 17. It says, On the mountain heights of Israel, I will plant it, says the Lord. It will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. The cedar was the, the, the redwood of that day. Birds of every kind, there you go. Birds of every kind will nest in it and they will find shelter in the shade of its branches. Or Daniel 4, I love this one. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle, in the middle of the the earth. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong. Its top reached the heavens, and it was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for every creature and every bird lived in its branches. See, this is what the ancients referred to as the axis mundi. The axis mundi was this um, idea that the earth um, has a backbone, backbone or, or a spine, or, or, or better yet, the ancients wanted to find the umbilical cord that connected earth to heaven. 
So in, in, in the ancient world, this axis mundi could take different forms. It could be a great mountain. It could be a temple or a temple on a high mountain. In, in Jacob's dream, what's the axis mundi? It's the great staircase. And what does it do? It connects heaven with earth. It's, it's, it's this umbilical cord. Uh, the Tower of Babel is essentially man's attempt to create an axis mundi because it says, and they built a tower reaching to the heavens. Of course, we know that never works. But that's what's been lost. That's why there's this longing. And that's why in the beginning of our Bibles, you have a great tree um, at the beginning of the story. You also have a great tree at the end of the story. Let's think about the beginning of the story. What's the world like? It's, it's described as a paradise because God creates a world that is good in every way. It's whole. It's complete. He says it's good. The world was a garden. There's no death. No suffering. No cancer. No pain, no violence. And why not? Because there was a tree in the center of the world, the tree of life. And that tree symbolizes why the world was perfectly good. Because the entire world was connected to heaven. And let me get more specific than that. The entire world, starting with Adam and Eve, they were connected to God. To God. God permeated creation. They had his presence. They saw his face. They walked with him in the cool of the day. And see, what I think some of us so quickly forget is, is how much we've been made for this garden, how we've been made for God, that the environment for which we were made is not the world as it is. The environment for which we were made is Eden. And God's that soil that every seed in this room needs to be planted in if we're going to flourish. And I'll tell you right now, I... I have to remind myself of this a lot. But right now, I know this. I need God more than I need oxygen, more than I need food, more than I need bread, more than I need anything else. I need him. Because that's the way God made me. That's the way he made you. And the world lost God. And it lost the tree of life. And it lost all this because human beings essentially wanted control. They wanted to be their own masters, their own Lord and Saviors. And so God says, fine, you want to do life without me? I'll just remove my presence. And the moment their relationship with God fell apart, everything fell apart. God withdrew his presence from the world. Heaven became distant from earth. Everything unraveled. Shalom was lost and the world became broken in every way. And that's the world we live in today. But the prophets foresaw a day when God would once again plant a tree, a world tree in the center of the world, an axis mundi that would again reconnect heaven with earth where the, where the glory of God would cover everything as the waters cover the sea. And when that happened, no more mourning or sickness or death or pain. 
And Jesus shows up and says, I am bringing that. That's the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, as Jesus says, the promise of this great tree, it's, it's, it's God once again. He's going to break into this world. He's going to reconnect heaven with earth. He's going to renew the whole thing, the whole thing. I don't know how that affects you, but that's what we're participating in. That's what, we, that's what we're sucked up into. That's what God in us and through us is unleashing. But here's what I want you to think about. Have you stopped to think about the fact that Jesus says God's kingdom or God's salvation is a kingdom? I want us to think about what that means because that has implications. First of all, it it means that, that God's salvation is not just about you, but it's about the world. And I think it's so easy to make God's salvation all about me and all about just this personal, private thing that I have with God, that God loves me, that God has a wonderful plan for my life, that God forgives me. But God's salvation as a kingdom means it's not just about God making me happy or God just forgiving my sins or God just uh, taking me away to heaven someday. It's bigger than that. God loves the world. And see, that's why I love to remind you all the time about the end of the story because what we see at the end of the story is not just a few souls escaping this world and going up to heaven. Instead, what we see is heaven coming down and renewing this world because God's grand purpose in all of this is far more than to just save your soul. It's to save and redeem the whole world because God so loves the world. And this is why Jesus tells this parable, just a little pinch of the kingdom of heaven when it goes into the dough. When you take just a pinch of the kingdom of heaven and you throw it into the universe, just watch. In time, it's going to spread through the whole thing. And the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ. This is where history's going. Whether you know that or not, whether you believe that or not, this is where it's going. This is why you can get up and dance right now. It's all going there. It's this unstoppable force of heaven coming to earth to redeem it. Now here's the deal. Why is this all important? Why am I taking so much time to say all this? Because when you and I start to realize that the kingdom of heaven is about more than just me, it's about more than just you, it's even about more than just itty-bitty crossroads, we start to care about the things God cares about. And we don't just care about ourselves. And we don't just care about our tribe. And we don't just care about crossroads. Because God's salvation is cosmic. And yes, we care about souls. We are going to be a church that cares about lost souls. Don't hear me saying that we don't care about lost souls. But it doesn't stop there. We care about neighborhoods, and we care about poverty, and we care about injustice, and we care about the environment. Why? Because God does. Second implication of of 
God's salvation being a kingdom is this, and I think this is so easy to miss. A king means what? There's a king. You can't have a kingdom without a king. How do you relate to a king? I mean, you relate to a king a lot differently than you relate to a friend. You relate to a king a lot differently than you relate to a boss. With a king, it's hard for us as Americans to understand, but we know enough about uh, history to know what you do with a king. You bow. You kneel. You give over everything that you are, everything that you own. Jesus is the king of this kingdom, which means we don't get to come to him on our terms. We don't get to come to him kind of negotiating with him, like, you get this much of my life, but I'm going to keep this much of my life. We don't come to him like he's just some consumer product. He's the king of this kingdom. And we're left really with one response to that. That is to bow our whole life to him. See, that's why there's so much when the Bible says, and Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. Now, I got to keep going here. Um, What's the shocker of this parable? And I've given you enough text already from the Old Testament to know that, okay, the audience, when they heard this, like, what is he talking about? What's the shocker? I know we don't know Dan Claver does trees, so Dan might already know enough about trees to know. What, but you guys, come on. What's, what's the shocker? It's even in the parable itself. This audience is expecting Jesus to talk about a great cedar. The seed goes in the ground, and it comes up, and it's this great redwood. A mustard seed? Are you kidding me, Jesus? Why did Jesus, these are the questions you have to ask in the test, why did he choose a mustard seed? It wasn't just to shock them, but there's a reason for it. It's right in the text. Small. Humble. But as uh, uh, Matthew and Mark's version say, it grows into the greatest of, not even trees, bushes. It's just a bush. It's a shrub. But the greatest of shrubs in the garden. In the garden. Remember Luke 6? And it's all over Luke's gospel. You remember the things that characterize Christ's kingdom? Remember those Beatitudes in Luke 6? It's, 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 it's not power and prosperity, but it's, it's weakness and poverty that characterize the kingdom of heaven. It's not comfort and status, but it's suffering and rejection. These are the things that characterize the kingdom of heaven. Um, they characterize Jesus' whole life. They characterize Jesus' whole movement. I'm getting ready to take another tour to Israel. I can't wait to, uh, to get there because every time I go... I am struck, profoundly struck, with how much God loves small and humble. When God wants to uh, 
create a great nation that's as numerous as the stars, he finds the most barren couple imaginable, Abraham and Sarah. And then barrenness runs through the whole story. Rebecca's barren, Rachel's barren, Hannah's barren. When God needs a great person, it's a David who's the least of eight brothers. It's a Gideon who's from the least tribe, the least family of that tribe, and the least clan of that family of that tribe. It's you, Gideon. You're the little guy. When God needs a people, a chosen people by which he's going to work, who does he pick? Israel. Why does he pick Israel? He tells us in Deuteronomy 7 and 9, he says, Israel, don't you ever think I picked you because you were big and great. I picked you because you were the least, the smallest. And over and over again throughout this whole story, it's the least, the smallest, the poorest, the barren. Then you get to Jesus. The king of the universe. Look at him. Born in Bethlehem. Called the least. Raised in Nazareth. They even say, what good can come out of Nazareth? And look at the people that he picks. Sinners. Tax collectors. Prostitutes. Who are the people that are flocking to Jesus, gathering around him, more importantly, bowing to him as their king? Sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, ostracized, the weak, the humble, the little guys. How many different ways does Jesus have to spell this out for us too? He, he, he says so many things. Like he teaches the smallest of seeds here becomes the greatest of trees. This is so God's way. He says the way to largeness is through smallness. He says the way to fullness is by emptying yourself. The way up is by going down. The way to power is by giving up power or through weakness. The way to get rich is by becoming poor. The way to be really happy is not to live for your happiness but the happiness of others. The way to greatness is always going to be through humility. He's saying this stuff over and over again. First shall be last, the last shall be first. The humble will be exalted, the exalted will be humbled. His values turn the whole world upside down. How do we miss this? Because I think everything we've been taught is to You become great. Be a great cedar of Lebanon. Make it to the top. Rise up. Get, amass, hoard. Make a name for yourself. Be liked. Be in control. These are the things our world values. Yet God's agenda from beginning to end is predicated on small and humble, of going down instead of going up, of becoming little instead of becoming great, of giving up power instead of hoarding power. You know how much God loves small? You know how much he loves barren? He became it. He became a baby. But he didn't just become a baby, he became an embryo 
And the God of the universe didn't just become an embryo. He became a single cell. The smallest of seeds. Why? For God so loves the world. Which includes you. And he went so far down. He went down into the earth. It says, unless the seed of, Jesus says, unless the seed falls into the earth, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces much food, fruit. And of course, Jesus is the seed. He's saying, that's me, right before he dies. He's the single seed. And here's the deal. Think about it. If Jesus had stayed up, you and I would have gone down. But because Jesus came down, you and I get to go up. You know what that seed produced? Do you ever think about what kind of tree? Cross. That's the axis mundi. You want to know what connects heaven to earth? What's going to, how heaven's going to come down and renew earth? It's the cross. And that cross right now stands in the center of the world. And if you want your life reconnected to God as Greg already prayed today. There is a way, and the way is through the cross. Come to him. Because this is where we get the presence of God. This is where we get the forgiveness of God. This is where we get the healing of God. This is where we get the power of God. This is where we get the salvation of God, it's through the cross. And I want us to think about this. Jesus not only wins over losing, but he wins through losing. He, he triumphs not only over defeat, but he triumphs through defeat. Come to him. I got two applications. First of all, to all the big people in the room right now. For those of you who think you're big shots. In fact, you're the people I'm most concerned about. And I'm not just saying you, I'm saying me too, because my heart can so quickly go there. But this is what I want to say to the big shots, which my heart can go to sometimes. According to the Bible, we are the ones who never get it. We're the ones who never end up really loving Jesus. We're the ones who never end up surrendering control of our lives to him because we don't have to. We have complete capability to control our own lives through our big shotness. I challenge you today, if this is God speaking to your heart, that that's what you are. This is a courageous prayer to pray. But Jesus, show me who I really am. Humble me. And do whatever you need to do to do it. And then pick me up. Pray it. Today, some of you feel really small. You feel worse than small. You feel like your life is a failure. You feel like it's just going down. You've made a mess of it. Here's what I have for you. Because this is the good news of the gospel. Go down, 
take Jesus with you. Because Jesus loves to go down. And take him with you in your downness. And in that place, humble yourself under his almighty hand, knowing that in due time, he will lift you up. Let's pray. God, burn the reality of this uh, little parable into our hearts today. The way up is to go down. And that if we go down there with Jesus, the way you went down, you will bring us up. God, we want more than just like a, a, a truth in our mind. We, we, we want this to be the existential reality of our lives. So God, I pray you would help us to humble ourselves under your almighty hand. Knowing that in due time, you will pick us up. Let's just stay here in silence for just a minute. Is your life going down? Are you striving to go up, up, up? Are you giving up your life? Are you constantly trying to take your life and take things for your life? God, push yourself, your spirit, your gospel, your Christ into each of us. for the glory of Jesus. And so the kingdom of heaven could be unleashed in us and through us. In your name I pray, amen.